Talking History, History on News Talk. lovely set of jigs from our wonderful musicians Brendan Kerr and Katrina Gribben live here in Belfast. It's Remembrance Sunday here in Northern Ireland and it's I think a perfect evening to be debating the events of 100 years ago with the partition of Ireland and the creation of Northern Ireland. Well, good evening and welcome. We are Talking History. We're broadcasting live from the Harrison Chambers of Distinction, a beautiful hotel in Belfast. It claims to be having, it has hosted scoundrels and scholars since 1879, and we're certainly uh, going to hopefully add to the reputation of certainly the scholarly element tonight. Uh, we are delighted to be joined by an absolutely brilliant panel of experts to debate the events of 100 years ago. Professor Marie Coleman, Professor of 20th Century Irish History at Queen's University, Belfast. Professor Michael Laffin, Emeritus Professor of History at UCD, Dr Cormac Moore, Historian in Residence with Dublin City Council and the author of Birth of the Border, The Impact of Partition in Ireland, Dr Margaret O'Callaghan, Reader in History and Politics at Queen's University Belfast, and Lord Bew, Professor Paul Bew, Emeritus Professor at Queen's University Belfast and the Chair of the Northern Ireland Centenary Historical Advisory Panel. Well, you are all very welcome. If you'd like to join in our discussion, discussion at home, just send us a text 53106, text cost 30 cents, or you can email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Now, Michael, I might begin with you, and I might begin with you because uh, you actually have the distinction of having taught pretty much everyone involved in tonight's show, uh, the presenter and all of the panel except for uh, Paul Bew. So perhaps we, it is appropriate to start with you. And I might begin with the fact that today, of course, is Remembrance Sunday here in Northern Ireland. And I think it's a good time to be discussing issues of commemoration, some of the complexity of involved with commemoration. And Michael, isn't there always that challenge with commemoration? Because sometimes people get angry. They think that if you're commemorating something, it's, it means that you're celebrating it. And sometimes people have very heated views on what should be commemorated. Yes, they do, and they're totally wrong. Uh, you celebrate if your party wins an election. You celebrate uh, if your team wins a match. But commemoration is totally different. Commemoration can have positive elements. It can have deeply negative elements as well. Just to take the most obvious, the classic example, to commemorate the famine does not celebrate the famine. It means that we look at it, we examine it, we put it in context, we remember it together. All these are involved in, in the idea, the concept of commemoration. And we, because we are all now, and at all times, products of the past, we have to look at the past regularly to understand how we've come to be where we are, what we are, and that involves often a degree of commemoration as well, of course, as quiet study. So commemoration may involve celebration, 
Very often, in fact, normally it doesn't, and sometimes it very definitely shouldn't. The two must be distinguished one from another. Margaret, you've done some excellent work on the, the challenges of commemoration in other periods. You've looked at, for example, 1916 and how it was commemorated in, in 1966. I wonder, is commemoration always difficult to get right? Yeah, I agree with Michael that um, celebration is quite different from commemoration. But commemoration is used by groups, sometimes by individuals, sometimes by governments, as politics in the present, if you like. So the activation of commemoration for political purposes is something we can't really get away from. So, for example, looking at 1916, you're asked questions like, who owns 1916? Is it the legacy of the Irish state? Uh, you know, that the Sinn Féin tried to make claims to it in 2016 this time. So I suppose every time you talk about commemoration, you talk about political uses to which the past can be put in the present. And I agree with Michael, it's not the same as celebration, but it's often, they're often confused in popular perception and they set up a ground, I suppose, through which people struggle to impose their own politics. So in divided societies in particular, a commemoration can be a site of political uh, fighting or contestation at the very least, I think. So Paul, you must have had your work cut out for you then chairing this historical advisory panel because uh, this probably was going to be a contested uh, series of commemorations. So how did you approach it and what sensitivities did you have to bear in mind? By the way, the first thing I'd like to say is although I wasn't taught by Michael, I've been hugely influenced as a historian by his books. So uh, I'm also one of, the, one, of, one of Michael's pupils in one way. Uh, but yes, Margaret is completely right, and in a divided society, this, there is an element of contestation. Uh, the first thing I tried to do was to get a panel of people who were as diverse and as good scholars as could be gathered up. And I think I'm enormously grateful to them as the end of the year approaches. You can see clearly the diversity, and quite clearly there is no possibility of unanimity on many of the crucial issues about Northern Ireland in 1921 or Northern Ireland more generally in that group. But nonetheless, we have been able to work together. We have put together a number of things. I think there will be a legacy, for example, in terms of the uh, enhanced release of documents from the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, uh, the book that we're planning for later in the year, and so on. So I, you know, the best you can do, you have to accept what Margaret said, bluntly. Uh, the, 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 the great division has slightly surprised me. I'm sure how naive I am. And I, I think part of the reason is it's just a difficult year with Brexit and COVID interacting and not, neither of them improving anybody's temper. Uh, um, so basically, you have to just accept that as a starting point. I don't, I can't recall, and we've done many events, broadcasts and so on, uh, 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 people around this table, probably between the three of us, over 100. Uh, and I don't recall anybody actually saying that was an outrageously unpleasant dispersion on my deeply held beliefs that I've just listened to. So we have really tried now, there's a few days of the year to go, so it's going to happen. I, I shouldn't attempt at fate by saying that. But that's the only thing you can do. You can get the best historians that are, that, that are available to you. I have to say this, and we maybe come back to this, that there's a limit to what historians can do. And I think both in the, in, 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 in the Republic, and I've watched closely the excellent work 
done by scholars there other than the North. There is actually a limit, but we can at least try and hit the limit the best we can do. And Cormac, we've seen how it's very easy for a, a relatively innocuous event to suddenly become politicised and become controversial. And when we're dealing with the creation of Northern Ireland and partition, we're dealing with things that have enormous political, social and cultural dimensions. And that just adds to the difficulty, I think. Yeah, and I think um, certainly um, going back for, for, from the start of partition onwards up until you know, the late 60s, 70s, most of the historiography of partition was political or political violence aspects. And there, was, there wasn't that much concentration on what were the social or cultural aspects of partition. But that's obviously changed in recent years. Um, my own book, I, I tried to look at how did people on the ground and organisations at the time, how did they react to partition? And because at the time it was so confusing, there was no certainty really until 1925, they reacted to partition in very different ways, whether they were nationalists or unionists or, or neither. Um, like we've looked at sporting bodies, you know, most sporting bodies that were formed before 1921 are still all Ireland bodies, whether they're unionist um, leaning sports or not. The same with trade unions, even the religions, all the three main Protestant denominations are still all Ireland bodies. So people react to partition in a very different way. And when we do commemorate or remember um, all, you know, all of the kind of events that happened 100 years ago, I think we need to remember that there was a lot more going on than just the political or political violence aspects to partition. And of course, Cormac, one of your earlier books looked at the, the split in soccer. So yesterday, Ireland had this famous uh, win over the All Blacks at rugby. It's, it's, it's all, all islands, but then in soccer, it's not. So it's, it's interesting what you, what you say, that in some areas there is, the, there is a divide and then in others there isn't. Yeah, this always comes up November time generally because at the same time you've got the Autumn Internationals, test games, they're all very important in rugby, and then you've got uh, qualifying competitions in, in football for you know, the Euros or World Cups. And everyone asks this question, why is rugby an all-Ireland sport and why is, is football not? Um, and like I've written mainly that soccer is split because of internal governance reasons rather than the partition of Ireland, even though they happened the same year. Whereas, whereas rugby was very much governed on a, on a kind of a, from, by unionists, both in the north and the south. So they had no internal uh, reasons to, to divide. And that's primarily why they, they remained as they were. Marie, historians love dates, but there's always that certain confusion about what date we should be talking about in terms of partition and the creation of Northern Ireland. Uh, and, and various ones suggested, is there an agreement about what date we should use? Well, to be honest, Patrick, this came as a bit of a surprise to me, and I think there was a bit of a manufactured debate around this, because all sorts of dates were being thrown around, ranging from December 1920, when the Government of Ireland Act was, was passed at Westminster, right up to the Boundary Commission, with all sorts of dates in between, including the, um, the truce and the King opening the Parliament. But it is the 3rd of May. 1921. The Government of Ireland Act set what was known as a, an appointed date for the transfer of powers. A proclamation from Buckingham Palace in March 21 said that date would be the 3rd of May 1921. And if people aren't sure, they can always consult the oracle. Michael Laffin's Partition of Ireland says it's the 3rd of May 1921, and that is good enough for me. 
And, and Marie, I wonder when we're talking about the partition of Ireland and when we're looking at what was happening in this, in this period, do we have to also look at what was happening in the rest of Europe after the First World War, that in a way that we sometimes see Ireland purely in terms of Ireland and Britain and not really in terms of the wider European context? Yes, absolutely. And I think partition is a very good example of that. If you look at the maps of Europe in 1914 and 1921, partition is the answer to ethnic problems with, with the breakup of empires all over Europe. So what's happening in Ireland, the solution which the British come up with, and again, works so well in Ireland, they use it again in India 30 years later, um, is not by any means out of kilter with the, what's happening in wider continental Europe with the breakup of the Austrian and the German empires either. Michael, was Northern Ireland always going to be the six counties that it ended up becoming or was there a possibility that it could be a smaller four county entity or a larger nine county entity involving the entire province? That debate went on for a very, very long time. Uh, first of all, both sides were determined there would not be partition. Nationalists wanted a united Home Rule Ireland, Unionists wanted a united Ireland within the United Kingdom with no change. Gradually there was a drift towards a compromise. Uh, and if Redmond and the Nationalists had in, say, 1912, acquiesced in a four-county Northern Ireland, uh, probably not with its own separate parliament and government then, and a 28-county South, uh, that would probably have happened. Because the government was on, the, the Liberal government under Asquith was on their side. But they insisted on holding out. The result was that the Unionists, supported massively by the Conservative Party, uh, one might say illegally uh, by the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party did the most extraordinary things in uh, undermining the loyalty of the army to the state. Uh, they were determined to get at the very least six counties, even though two of those six, Tyrone and Fermanagh, had small Catholic nationalist majorities, and ideally nine. But ultimately, they decided, after the war, they decided that nine counties would be too risky. The balance of population would be too close. And since the Catholics had a higher birth rate than the Protestants, nationalists a higher birth rate than the Unionists, there was a danger that a separate nine-county Ulster might vote itself into a united Ireland. So they decided on six. And above all, they were determined that there would be no consultation of the people. There would be no plebiscites, no referenda, no county option. It would be decided by the government. And now, in 1919, 2021, they, the Unionists, knew that the government was on their side. In the three previous Home Rule Bills, the government had been on the nationalist side, but no longer. And this was the only Home Rule Bill that was enacted, and it was enacted in the interest of the Unionists. They wanted six counties, they got six counties. Margaret, when you look at the timelines, and we've talked about May being the, the date, it becomes a little bit confusing because you have partition and Northern Ireland being created. But then after that, a few months later, you have the start of the negotiations between uh, which, which, the, the negotiations that lead to the treaty. So these negotiations are taking place, even though in a way it's already a done deal in terms of what's going to happen to, with, with the North. I don't think things are really that clear cut. 
I think, for example, the Government of Ireland Act of 1920 is new and surprising. I don't see it as a continuation of the kind of idea of excluding some Ulster counties that you had before the war, for example. Uh, it seems to be a dramatically new suggestion to have a devolved administration, both north and south. So that's my first point, I think. I see 1920 and what comes out of it as radically new post-war. It relates to what went before, but it is new. Um, secondly, I think I take Marie's point about uh, Ireland fitting into a kind of wider, wider European post-war context in the sense that the war doesn't just end in 1918, all kinds of issues still carry on. But I think what's slightly different in the Irish case is if you look at most of the redrawings of boundaries in Europe, there is an element of plebiscites involved. And the point about the Irish border is it's a fresh cut. And that in itself, I think, is very surprising. So I can take the point with the Boundary Commission further, if you like, uh, now, or just leave it at that for the moment. Yeah, we might get to that, but I wonder what did James Craig think when uh, he saw these negotiations taking place in London? Did he think that there was a chance that he might be sold out and Northern Ireland might be sold out? Or did, was he confident that, that they were safe and secure? Well, I think that the um, treaty negotiations were a shock to Craig. Uh, they're talking to Craig during the negotiations. Uh, it, he thought he had everything more or less in the bag from the summer of 21. The treaty opens everything up. The provision of a boundary commission alters the potential future for Northern Ireland and I think conditions Craig's behaviour and mentality from certainly the beginning of 1922 onwards. Yeah, because Cormac, it does create that element of uncertainty. Well, there was uncertainty not just before the treaty negotiations began. There was uncertainty the moment Northern Ireland was established. Lloyd George was, um, was actually trying to pressurise Craig in July of 1921 to be subsumed, for Northern Ireland to exist, but to be subsumed into a Dublin Parliament as opposed to Westminster. And he tried that again in November. November is a crucial month here, um, is because when Northern Ireland was established, it was not given most of its powers. It had no uh, powers over local government, it had no powers over policing. In fact, it lost its powers over the specials and, and, uh, and, and over law and order. And the British government were clearly keeping those in reserve for its negotiations with Sinn Féin. So, so of course, um, um, Craig was aware of this. And he, was, he got, was very paranoid. If you look at the, the press reports, in all of those months, the unionist, the Ulster unionist politicians are outraged by the certain members of the Conservative Party abandoning them, calling it disgraceful behaviour. You know, they're, they're leaving us out to dry. Um, so, so they were very paranoid. Um, from the get-go. And obviously, I know Margaret will talk more about the Boundary Commission, but that was a hammer blow as well. So that showed that Northern Ireland was not a done deal, that it, it certainly parts of it were, were debatable and, and were up, up for uh, uh, um, um, changing with the Boundary Commission. And Marie, even though you had a, a truce and even though you had the treaty negotiations, you also see a continuation of, of violence in, in parts of Northern Ireland. Just to pick up on um, Cormac's point, you could think that very little has changed in 100 years if Ulster Unionist politicians don't um, trust Conservative governments over borders in Ireland. Um, but you're, you're absolutely dead right. And um, even though we, we have a chronology of the War of Independence in the South of January 19 to July 21, that does not happen in the North. If one just looks at that new compendium, The Dead of the Irish Revolution, the killing goes on in Ulster, in, in particularly the six counties that had become Northern Ireland, from mid-1920 mid to mid-1922. 
Very good. Well, we are talking history, and tonight we're talking history from the beautiful surroundings of the Harrison Chambers of Distinction in Belfast. Unfortunately, no live studio audience tonight. We are being very strictly COVID compliant, but it is wonderful to be able to do an outside broadcast for the first time since 2019. But right now, I'm going to hand over to one of our uh, talented musicians, Katrina Gribben, to introduce a song that I believe she has a very interesting uh, role uh, investigating the history as well as developing it. Katrina? Hi, um, so uh, we're going to sing a song called Galtine Thi War, which is, um, it translates to the little foreigner in the big house. And I spent this year during my master's in research at Queen's University collecting and preserving these songs that hadn't ever been notated before and only been passed on in, with the oral tradition. So... Kaljin ti hor ni pasi magacha Binchi shrewd in this game Salakin shan worth A huli manrath Lushan wuhul jasak Ia hira hun taran sa wunyu hanwun Signa diyatan kusha shadalu A dan ignat yoku Ardan thalu near you Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back. We're talking history, and tonight we're talking from the beautiful surroundings of the Harrison Chambers of Distinction in Belfast. And before the break, there we heard an absolutely beautiful song from Katrina Gribben and ably helped there by Brendan Kerr. Uh, but I'm delighted at this point uh, to be joined by the owner of this establishment, uh, Melanie Harrison. Uh, Melanie, thank you so much for hosting us tonight. Yeah, it's fabulous to have you all here. I'm, I'm gripped by what I'm hearing. It's, it's so interesting. So tell us about the history of this building. Well, we are actually in the building where uh, Cleaver of the very famous Robinson and Cleaver department store, uh, Cleaver and his eight children and his wife Mary Spence from Rich Hill lived uh, in the 1880s. And uh, he was, uh, not only was he famous for having the, the department store, but uh, we think this online shopping and, and um, you know, Amazon thing is, is, is a new thing, but he was very entrepreneurial back in the day. And 66% of the parcels that left Belfast went from uh, the, the basement of, of, of Robinson and Cleaver to go all over the world, all luxury Irish goods. Now, there are 16 beautiful rooms here and they all have a, a literary or artistic theme. I'm in the Seamus Heaney room tonight and there's a, a wonderful portrait and some, some collections of poems. There's the C.S. Lewis room and there's uh, uh, one named after the Bronte sisters. Why did you decide to add the, the artistic dimension? Well, I think I'm just drawn to these characters. Um, we, yeah, people who are, have had interesting lives or maybe more eccentric characters and uh, 
really I think of, of this as a collection of stories rather than a collection of rooms and everyone has a very rich deep history and story behind them. And the history is all around us from the railings to the floorboards to the carpet there's so much that does date back that there is there are the the historical elements all around us. Yeah the, the railings are from the Ebrington Barracks in Derry, the floorboards of the Royal Victoria Hospital, uh, radiators from the Arrow um, in North Belfast, the, the carpets from Ulster Carpets. It's a celebration of all things Belfast. Okay, well, Melanie Harrison, thank you so much for hosting us tonight. We are absolutely delighted and honoured to be here for our first outside broadcast since the start of the pandemic. And, uh, well, we are certainly delighted uh, to have been able to, to bring a panel of experts together to debate and discuss the events of 100 years ago. And what a panel, Professor Marie Coleman, uh, Professor Michael Laffin, Dr. Cormac Moore, Dr. Margaret O'Callaghan and Lord Bew, Professor Paul Bew. And Paul, before the break there, we were talking about, you know, a lot of the challenges in terms of how they even decided on what the entity was going to be and, and some of the tensions then in terms of what was going on with the negotiations in London. So there are kind of overlapping stories at this time. Yes, there are. And I agree completely with what my colleagues have said. And Michael began that section by saying, that uh, you know, there's nothing inevitable about six counties. There was a case widely believed in by a lot of people for nine. If, if there was going to be a partition, there was a case for four. And uh, there is a strong argument different that different nationalist tactics would have brought us something closer to four. Yeah, um, the, I, I think there's an underlying element here which is sometimes missed in these discussions. And that is actually the skill with which the unions played the concept of consent. Uh, it's the, the, the key, there's a key moment when uh, uh, Carson says to Redmond, it has a big effect on Redmond, Ulster may be wooed, she can never be coursed. The, that is internalised by some Irish nationalists, Redmond and John Dillon actually, very much so, uh, um, uh, in the parliamentary party, but much more so by the leaders of both the main British parties actually. And they, they, they're constantly playing this all the way through. So when there is a joint statement at the end of 19 by Bonner Law and Lloyd George for um, representing both political traditions, they say there are really only two things we need out of an, an Irish settlement. One is no complete break by Ireland from the empire, which they got, although you could reasonably argue it was substantively a break. Uh, and, and the other thing is that uh, Ulster not be coerced. Uh, and and those, those, this, this means that it's absolutely true. Craig had a very edgy time in November 1921, time during the treaty talks, because it's a complicated matter. It's one thing saying we're not going to coerce you, but are we going to send you the money you need? So that's, you know, you get, you get into a subset of another set of difficulties. And he had a number of people in London, senior positions, who didn't want to send him any money at all. Uh, uh, and uh, at the time of violence in Belfast, you actually did need money. So it's a complicated set of issues, but it's because of the belief in consent that he has the nerve to do the thing which opened the way up to treaty negotiations at all. And he allies himself with the peacemakers, not the hawks in the Irish state, and he goes and meets de Valera in the months before the treaty talks, and he does it because he knows he's breaking the ice. He knows once, the conversation with de Valera is not a meeting of minds. That's not the point. He's opening the door to what was inevitably going to come, conversations between the Sinn Féin leadership and the, and the Irish government. He's always reasonably sure that the, 
that the commitment not to coercing Ulster is there, or not to accept any form of coercion of Ulster, is there in large parts of the British establishment. And it is. It's just not there in all parts of the British establishment. Margaret, I've always been a little bit confused by the, the story of the Boundary Commission because Irish nationalists really seem to have believed on, on both sides of the, the treaty debates that, that the Boundary Commission would solve things and it would leave an, an entity that was too small to be, to be viable. And I, I've always really not really understood whether that was them being naive or was there a possibility that that might have happened? Well, I suppose as Maria said, it's the summer of 1921 when a Parliament of Northern Ireland is opened. By the time of the treaty, six months later, most Irish nationalists, possibly excluding Redmond, who's long gone, and Dillon, uh, most Irish nationalists have not accepted partition. They don't think it's permanent. They don't think it's going to last forever. So the strategy of the British government in, if you like, establishing Northern Ireland as an a priori fact, and then moving on to deal with the rest of Ireland, perhaps contributed to nationalist Ireland's failure to take seriously the threat of a permanent partition, which they really don't take on board at all. And the Boundary Commission, you know, we talk about why there isn't that much discussion about partition and maybe the treaty debates, but the Boundary Commission, which is provided for in the December uh, treaty, says that the wishes of the inhabitants conditioned by economic and geographic considerations will be considered in the final lie of the border. Now, for most Irish nationals, they may be fooling themselves, they may be deluding themselves, uh, maybe Collins is naive, maybe Griffith is naive, but they look back to the, um, say, PR elections of 1920, and they believe that there's a nationalist majority in Fermanagh, in Tyrone, in South Down, in Derry City, and they think or they allow themselves to believe that if there is some kind of a plebiscitary uh, procedure, as there has been in other places in Europe, well then a lot of that area will be returned to them. They also go back to the legal terms of the agreement under the Government of Ireland Act, which precluded Craig from raising, for example, a substantial militia, though he renegotiates that, and that financially straight-jacketed him. Now, we know that Craig boxes his way out of those restraints through 1922, but that is not at all apparent or evident. So the supposition of the nationalists that the Boundary Commission will revise the lie of the border is reasonable at least in 22. Now, whether after the death of Collins and Griffith, those who pursue the Boundary Commission fairly comprehensively after that believe it as they did is, I think, another question. But you can say, from an Irish nationalist point of view, hope remains until 1925. And Michael, it's very interesting there what Margaret said about the, the treaty debates and the fact that partition doesn't feature uh, very much at all. And that's probably one of the great myths of Irish history, the, the idea that it was all about partition and it was all about uh, Northern Ireland that, that led to the Civil War. And I'm just wondering why wasn't, why was there such a, an acceptance that this would, I suppose Margaret has explained, but you, you still kind of think that even for, for just uh, 
to, to come up with something that would that would resonate with people's emotions, they might have I've emphasised the partition element more on the anti-treaty side. Well, it, it's fascinating to to look at the Irish side before and during the treaty negotiations. They, the Irish, were determined that if a break came, it should be on the question of partition. That was an emotive issue that would arouse the Irish people. But they themselves, the leaders, were much more concerned about sovereignty, about the degree of independence that whatever area might become independent would, uh, would, would have. They wanted uh, as much sovereignty, uh, as little connection with the monarchy as possible. And uh, in a way, during the treaty negotiations, um, Partition and the North, they, they were stalking horses. For example, when, Lloyd, when, when De Valera went to meet Lloyd George in July 1921, Lloyd George afterwards said, that was a very, very satisfactory meeting. De Valera was a bad negotiator. He never mentioned Fermanagh or Tyrone. And Lloyd George knew very well that they were the weak links. To go on, as you suggested, as, as you mentioned, Patrick, to go on to the treaty debates themselves, there was very little discussion uh, in, in the uh, treaty debates about the North. Uh, the great bulk of it was about the degree of independence uh, that the new free state would have, uh, the links with the Crown, and so on. Maybe because people felt that the Boundary Commission would do the job, maybe because they had other priorities, and almost all of the Doyle deputies were from the South, from the 26 counties, not from the North. But there was a tendency to ignore the North. And the fantasy that the Civil War was fought over partition is still to be encountered in, in, in some quarters in Ireland today. It wasn't. It was about totally different issues, about the oath and, and the degree of independence that the army would have from the government. Only when other issues had been solved did people begin to concentrate retrospectively on partition and the North. Very good. Marie, in a way, an interesting figure at this period is Archbishop Gregg, because tell us about him and, and the work that he does in maybe ensuring that uh, there is an acceptance of this new arrangement. Yes, and we've spent a lot of time tonight talking about political leaders, and Cormac brought in the, the wider civic side of it, and I think that's important. Archbishop John Gregg, Church of Ireland Archbishop of Dublin, who was appointed to that role in 1920, I think that's a hugely important uh, appointment at that time. And he plays a very important role in reconciling his uh, flock in the south to the new Irish state. So it's not to be, we don't want to assume that all Southern Protestants were unionists, but the majority would have, would have been. And partition to the Southern unionists and the Southern Protestants was very much uh, an abandonment, abandonment of them in a jurisdiction which they didn't want any part of. But by, if you look at the, say, the Church of Ireland Gazette in January 1922, they've come to an acceptance that this is the way things are going to be. This is now our state. Greg plays a hugely important role in reconciling people to something that they probably don't want to be reconciled to, but have very little option but to uh, recognise. And that's a, a quite marked contrast to nationalists in the North, which is something we might get a chance to discuss at a later point. And Cormac, it probably shows the danger of looking back at things with the benefit of hindsight, because looking back at hindsight, it's very easy to, to see where the twists and turns were. But of course, that wouldn't have been obvious to the people at the time. Yeah, I just want to come back on, on what uh, Michael was saying. I think personally it's been um, 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 exaggerated that, that Sinn Féin only cared about sovereignty and didn't care as much about the North. Yes, they did use it as a tactic and they did know that if it broke an Ulster, 
that was certainly good for their position. But I do believe they genuinely cared about Ulster, and I believe certainly Collins did. And Collins, on a number of occasions during the negotiations, asked for a plebiscite. And in fact, it was it was the, his meeting with Lloyd George on the the fifth of, of December that morning where he, he wanted more commitments on the North. And it was a central part of the negotiations. Where they spectacularly um, failed, in my opinion, was the terms of the a Boundary Commission in itself wasn't necessarily a bad idea, but it was actually green to those terms. They should have just looked, as they did with the North East, uh, you know, the Eastern Boundary, when they were preparing for the Boundary Commission, they should have looked what happened elsewhere in Europe. D don't agree to it unless you get a plebiscite. Don't agree to it unless you get a, a, an independent chairperson not the British government um, being, the, being the chairperson. They agreed to two uh, positions that just left too many holes, too many gaps, and that was their, their major failing with the treaty negotiations. And of course, Michael, we don't know what would have happened or what might have happened if Michael Collins had lived, because, you know, suddenly there's a whole new set of leaders and a whole new dynamic after the end of the Civil War. And Collins had been engaged in undermining the Northern States, smuggling guns that he had been given by the British government to bolster his own army, passing those on to the IRA in the North. It was a very, very dangerous game to play. Uh, and uh, his colleagues were, in some cases, dismayed by it. Certainly, as soon as he died, they stopped it completely. Uh, and they made it clear that uh, we are not going to engage any further in this um, campaign of, of subversion of Northern Ireland. We're going to accept things as they are and hope for changes with the Boundary Commission. Okay, well, tonight we're talking history from the Harrison Chambers of Distinction in Belfast, and we're debating the events of 100 years ago with partition and the creation of Northern Ireland. And a lovely text from Tom in Kildare on 53106, saying that he's not uh, well-versed in history, but he finds this uh, fascinating programme and a brilliant insight into the events. Well, we're going to have more on the impact and the legacy of uh, the creation of Northern Ireland right after this break, so stay with us here on News talk. Talking history. On News Talk. Well, welcome back as we debate the centenary of partition and the creation of Northern Ireland. We're in the Harrison Chambers of Distinction with an incredibly distinguished panel of experts Marie Coleman, Michael Laffin, Cormac Moore, Margaret O'Callaghan, and Paul Bew. Cormac, can I ask you about the customs barrier in 1923? Because that seems to have changed everything. But the fact that it was the free state that was introducing it seems talk us about that because it seems like an, an unlikely or an maybe an unexpected twist in the story yeah actually Lloyd George gave a, a very late concession to Arthur Griffith who, who always wanted fiscal independence and that uh, the Irish free state could actually ra raise their own tariffs um, this is very late in the day before the treaty was signed and it, it was actually in April 1923 um, the Free State was obviously, you know, ju just a, towards the end of its civil war, and uh, it decided it would impose uh, customs barriers, um, temporary, it said, although they lasted for 70 years. Um, and James Craig actually said there was no partition before the customs barriers, and it was actually the South who brought in partition. Um, and that, that was when partition was realised by people on the ground uh, on a more permanent basis than anything before. It was an administrative burden in many, for many people before that, but by April 1923, when customs comes in, it becomes a hard border. You know, there, there are unapproved roads, there, there are um, um, uh, approved roads. People sometimes could be only across the road and they might have to go miles to get from, from one location to the other. The whole idea of smuggling comes in. Um, the, the, this, this really does harden the border and makes it permanent for many people. And it actually is important as well when it, when it comes to the Boundary Commission. I've done a lot of research on the, the, uh, the Boundary Commission uh, um, evidence given in Down, South Down and East Down and, and South Armagh. 
And the amount of times that the Justice Feetham used the Boundary Commission, uh, Unionist representatives used the, the Boundary Commission, as does Nationalists, it is seen as a pivotal moment in the creation of Northern Ireland and the creation of a hard border. They go back to the customs union, they keep evoking the customs. Feetham constantly mentions it. What would happen if we change the border? What would happen to customs union? And, and Ashes talk about how it's affected him. Unions talk about how it would affect him. We got a nice text in uh, uh, that uh, two very young listeners, uh, Ellie and James, are listening to the show tonight. My own children, so uh, uh, delighted that they're enjoying it. Uh, Marie, we've talked a lot about what was what was the perspective in the in, in the south in Dublin, what was the perspective in the north in Belfast. What was the British perspective? I think that's a hugely important perspective. We've talked about how the border partitioned Ulster, it partitioned Ireland, it also partitioned what from 1801 was the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. The United Kingdom, with in granting independence to the Irish Free State, a large measure of independence, not the complete separation as a republic that would come later, but the United Kingdom lost 7% of its population and 25% of its land mass. The creation of Northern Ireland as a devolved government within the UK was the first experiment of devolution within the UK long before the current Scottish Parliament or Welsh Assembly and my colleague Graham Walker has written quite extensively on the significance of Northern Ireland as the really the forerunner of devolution in the United Kingdom and the independent side of it the, the the Southern Ireland breaking away in many ways could be seen as the beginning of the end of the empire because it has knock-on effects particularly for India and that is probably why the British government is not prepared to, to cut off completely and allow the free state go as a republic because of what will happen elsewhere in the empire. And Michael, it's interesting, we're talking history, we're not talking politics, but if we were a political show, you could see how there's so much in, in this story that resonates today in terms of, in terms of some of the tensions and some of the, the arrangements. And I wonder when, you, when, you, when we look at the impact, what would, uh, what would we say in terms of, is it the fact that it it's continues to, to be a, such a live issue a hundred years later? It does, of course, because a great numbers of Irish people want uh, to reunify Ireland. Um, a million unionists don't. Uh, there's, there's an element in Britain uh, determines that Northern Ireland will remain part of the United Kingdom and, and has fought tooth and nail against any diminution of the empire and this is the last significant diminution that there might be. But it's, it's worthwhile, we've talked, because we're in Belfast now, we've talked naturally and rightly uh, mainly about the North, but it's worth just reflecting very briefly on the South, on the Free State and the Republic. Uh, because partition removed almost all the minority. Uh, only 7% of the population was not Catholic uh, after 1922. It meant that in contrast to almost all the other new states in Europe, the, the free state was homogenous. It, it, was, uh, it had no internal divisions of the sort that was to, uh, were to damage or destroy countries like Czechoslovakia, bring down democracy in Lithuania, Poland, and so on. So in that way, the free state got off to a surprisingly good start. Paul, I'm going to leave the final word to you. I think what really this shows is, is the importance of historical research and mm. historical engage, engagement with the past because that's the only real way of, of filling the gaps that are there. Well, it's the only... We, we have to try... Um, I was just, by the way, struck what Michael's point. It is the great advantage Ireland had and it is the advantage that an independent Scotland will not have. There will always be 45% of the people saying this is a really bad idea, um, which in Ireland was able to 
Well, it was or it wasn't. Most people approved the concept of independence. But briefly, yeah, we historians have a role. We probably made, and politicians as well, the phrase is shared history do too much work. The truth is that I have been impressed by the way in which issues of violence around political violence continue to go on, even though, for example, I consider that the people on my panel have gone out of their way to write fairly about it. Um, the best thing ever written about the anti-Catholic violence in Belfast for many decades was Henry Patterson's on the panel, his, his piece on, uh, on the Belfast shipyard expulsions. So uh, even though I consider that my panel has done excellent work on it, uh, um, nonetheless, the question of violence between different sets of Irishmen and against Irishmen in uniform, which was a problem in, in, for, the, for, for, the, for the committee in the South, those problems have not, are not solvable by historians, although we've tried. I'm afraid those rows still go on. Okay, well that does bring us to the end of our discussion tonight and I think that's a wonderful note on which to end what has been a very enlightening and interesting hour. Uh, a brilliant panel of experts, Paul Bew, Margaret O'Callaghan, Cormac Moore, Michael Laffin and Marie Coleman. A big thank you to everyone at News Talk who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer of course, Paul Buckland who is our tech op here in Belfast. Also thanks to Shifra O'Donovan, our outside broadcast manager and back in studio, Ronan Mullen and Steve Stephen McLoon. Uh, also a big shout out, of course, to Melanie Harrison for hosting us tonight in the beautiful surroundings of the Harrison Chambers of Distinction. We are going to play out with some more music from our, our absolutely wonderfully talented musicians, Brendan Kerr and Katrina Gribben. And Katrina, could you uh, maybe introduce this piece and also maybe tell us if, if our listeners wanted to find out more about uh, uh, these works and about the music, where, where should they go? So um, to listen to our music, we have an EP out on Bandcamp. So if you search Katrina Gribben at bandcamp.com, there should be an album. And um, we're going to play a set of reels now called Boys of Balsadair and the Galway Rambler.
Talking History, History on News Talk.